0: Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name's Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I'm joined,
1: as ever, by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm normally the co-host of the Arrow Video Podcast, but this fortnight I'm a mere guest, uh, because Dan went rogue this week, he's chosen Holy Mountain, and as he's a bigger Jodorowsky fan than me, I bow to his wisdom... And I will transform myself into a mere spotlight operator and I will aim the beam of the Arrow video podcast at him. So, Dan, take it away. Why do you love this director and this film so much?
0: I thought we were going to do both. I did both. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I do love Jodorowsky. I love his films, or some of them. I've learned some things about him I don't like, watching all the extras <laughs> on this set. So this is going to be another one of our regular favourites, uh, separating the art
1: from the artist. Um, that surprises me. That, that surprises me. Um, I thought, I mean, I, I, I'll find out what you learn, but yeah, his most controversial stuff is certainly out there.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It does seem like there was a lot of stuff I'd heard before, but really, I'd sort of I knew his comic book work, and I knew most of his films, not all of his films. Um, certainly, the earlier stuff I was, uh, you know, I knew. Uh, I'd watched Holy Mountain loads. I'd watched El Topo a bit, like less, but a few times. I don't know how much I knew about him as a person. I mean, right. you know, I know he likes the tarot. I knew about his relationship with his father. I knew about. Yeah, like there was lots. There was a fair amount that I did know. Somehow, I'd managed to miss some of the more unpleasant stuff, and a lot of the world seems to have missed it as well. Because I'm very surprised he's not gotten in. Uh, he's not had the spotlight
1: shone on him more for some of the stuff. Um, I, I mean, I yeah. I I made a film inspired by some of the stuff. Yeah, a little more flesh is, you know, there's a significant element of a little more flesh that's kind of inspired by. Um, by the darker side of uh, Jodorowsky.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, he's yeah he's certainly uh, uh, an interesting character, and he does talk a lot about how he doesn't think he's a genius. Right. <laughs> well, that that's good. Um, yeah, you know, so he's got that going for him, I guess. <laughs> you immediately undermine genius if you claim it. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Do, it's, do, you, do it, you think he's got more humble as he's gotten older though? Because, I mean you know there's that quote uh, that i've i've written down here so um we got an email about jodorowsky after we announced that we were going to do this episode and we were linked to an interview with him so it was kind of about animal cruelty and and i'm sure yeah. you know dan dan will go into that side of things for sure because it's something that you're very passionate about um, and me too <laughs> You know, I'm not saying uh, I'm not but uh, a quote that kind of jumped out at me in, in, in that interview that we got sent um, was this quote I make the scene but I leave you to have your own feelings, I don't direct the way you should react, I don't want to do that I'm not a Hitchcock, I'm not a Spielberg, I'm not a degenerate <laughs> so he's, <laughs> he's not a genius but he's not a degenerate like Hitchcock and Spielberg apparently um, yeah, I
0: mean the thing
1: is I mean like like any well-crafted movie villain
0: you should agree with about 80 to 90% of what they say. <laughs> so do you agree with that? I I mean like he definitely takes a bit of a left turn at the end. I think he probably is a bit of a degenerate. <laughs> <laughs> but I I do agree with and I'm not saying it's the only way, you know, I I like the work of Hitchcock and uh, to some of the work of Spielberg. Like I don't think that Yodorovsky's way of approaching things is the only correct way of doing it but I certainly think there's value in just presenting an audience with something and letting you know more oblique and letting them make their own like find their own experience within it uh and and he certainly talks a lot about that one of the things that sort of um uh he like there's a bit in the El Topo audio commentary where he complains about test audiences (laughs) Uh, and he says, 20, 30, 40 imbeciles can change the ending of a movie because their vulgar tastes must be satisfied. There you go. Um, and he talks about, like, films as a business being the big problem with films. Uh, and and it stops people from being artistic because there's money involved. You know, people want to make a profit rather than just to break even um and he thinks that that undermines the value of cinema and to some Mm. extent i agree like i love the big blockbuster stuff some of it but i i do also think that there needs to be room for people to be able to experiment i mean he was operating so far outside of the system that he did some pretty shady stuff some pretty regrettable stuff i think so it's it's difficult you know I, I do feel that it's the Yodorovsky approach that led to that incident on the train tracks a few years ago that was that was so high profile. Mm. Like you know, just just fucking off the system and saying I'm doing it myself. And it's one thing if you're, you know, a Chilean surrealist with God com- with a God complex hanging off a dilapidated bridge you've found, and risking your own life. It's another thing when you forget to tell a load of non actors who are who like who are superstitious locals and think you might actually be the devil that they're not allowed to move when they're playing dead bodies in the sun and then just fuck off and they all just stay there because they're scared and have to go to the hospital with sunstroke.
1: Yeah I mean I I, I feel like um, one of the reasons I kind of did my intro in the way I did um, was you know partly because this was your choice and you know, as soon as this box set was announced, you really wanted to do it for the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Um and so I, I feel like a lot of people who are listening to this will be listening to this because they are passionate Jodorowsky fans. They do love um Holy Mountain and they did buy this uh box set quickly. So I was actually hoping that you would be more of a positive voice in this and that <laughs> I'd be able to take a step back because, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I have I have lots his, of things to say that I'm not going to say. So I, I want I really want this to be a, a Dan well, episode I, of the Arrow Video a, Podcast.
0: A I think you should say those things. And B, um I and here's the twist, Sam. Oh god. Here's the here's the twist. <laughs> yeah. So my stance has always been that it's impossible to entirely separate the artist the art from the artist. Yeah. And I think, and this is definitely going to sound like a big cop-out, and I've been wrestling with this all day, <laughs> I think when the movie is experiential and not making an overt statement and happens to include or have utilised in its production reprehensible events, then that is different, and you can you can separate that from the artist in a way, or or at least it is... Arguably possible to separate yeah. that from the artist in a way that you can't if they are making a statement with their work that right. you are choosing to overlook.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, people who listen to this podcast know that I do believe in separating the art and the artist as, as much as is possible. And sometimes it's really not possible, you know, in extreme cases. You know, I'm not going to go into those now, but, you know, I think we all we all know what they are but uh, you know i i kind of need to like the art as well (laughs) um so are you not a fan of the of the films no um Ah. yeah that's that's kind of where the problem comes in here oh well i'll I'll defend the actual films yeah oh god (laughs) i'll defend them to the hilt yeah yeah no um you know by all means defend the films i'm i'm not going to attack the films um a great deal because uh, as i said before <laughs> i have respect for um the people who like them um it's just uh it's just not for me uh, and if a film like holy mountain worked for everyone i think um you know i think we'd need a test audience to make that happen <laughs> and, there, and like <laughs> i say there definitely hasn't been a test audience here um so so, yeah, tell tell me what you love about Holy Mountain. I think that it's like,
0: so, it, you know, Holy Mountain has a narrative, arguably. It is linear, possibly more so than El Topo, certainly more so than Fando and Less. But it is still, like, it is making arguments as well and they're not arguments I disagree with for the most part oh god um, yeah certain, as, I was, as I was
1: re-watching it I was like oh my god this is no wonder Dan wants to do this one this is the ultimate dad movie
0: well it's you know I mean I'm assuming you're talking about all the pissing on religion stuff
1: <laughs> partly
0: but you know yeah it's yeah it's 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 got so many wonderful visual things in it he's created so much and i and again i think one of the things f- for me that makes holy mountain stand above el topo um is the money that he's had to play with you know it's i, I don't think there are you know, every, every filmmaker has a sweet spot as far as budget goes and and if you go over it <laughs> they, start, they start to everything starts to become masturbatory not that yodorowsky isn't masturbatory all the way through his movies literally and figuratively to some extent but what he's able to bring to life is very very exciting to me whether it's the like crazed dirt streets of the of the world this sort of oppressed world that we start in in el topo in um, holy mountain or the or the massive tower that's sort of you know where tithes are put on this big hook and our 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 Main character sort of makes his way up into the tower via subterfuge and meets the alchemist played by Udarsky himself. You know that just the 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 fact that he's been able to build all the stuff, whereas El Topo was largely built on like lo- largely filmed in found locations, including like sort of old spaghetti western or or Amer- you know American western shooting down in Mexico, like old builds. They're just find stuff and shooting it, the abandoned mines, whatever. Yodorovsky was able to imprint his aesthetic in a way in Holy Mountain that he wasn't in uh, in El Topo, and my God, what an aesthetic! It's I, I absolutely love the film, and I um, I haven't listened to the audio commentary for for Holy Mountain yet, and I'm slightly loath to do so. Like I, I'm going to, but I just don't want to know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to know how I don't want to know how the sausage is
1: made. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's very fair um, because, you know, it, 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 it's definitely more linear than people give it credit for, but it is also an experiential, isn't it? And I think, yeah, any kind of commentary from people involved in making it, you know, from Jodorowsky himself is going to take some of the shine off that and, and create associations that you might not necessarily want. You know, this is this is my first revisit, of holy mountain since watching it as a teenager i guess um and i i loved it uh as a teenager i thought it was you know beautiful and i was like wow it really gets society man um but, <laughs> but yeah revisiting it now it all feels a bit simplistic and you know a little bit childish and yeah i mean one thing i definitely still find impressive is the scale um as you rightly point out uh i I honestly can't believe this kind of film got this level of production design um the production design is absolutely insane, it's wonderful, and there's lots of beautiful imagery in there as as well as some ugliness um a bit of ugliness but yeah, outside of that I just i guess I found it a bit to use a cliche um emperor's new clothes um but maybe that's the point you know it is called Holy Mountain um it is about false idols or at least that's how i interpret it yeah Um, yeah, yeah. and the ending certainly suggests that cinema itself is its own false idol but but do i want to spend two hours of my life with that message i don't know Uh, it almost feels like an anti-film film film to me um telling us that the real world is a better way to spend our time than watching holy mountain um which i do actually agree with (laughs) um Yeah. (laughs) even now sam (laughs) even under current circumstances um yeah i just um yeah no maybe not actually that's a good point um (laughs) yeah we're recording this the day after halloween so the day after the government unleashed its own horror show so i think we're both still a little bit in shock about that but you spent your halloween dressed as the alchemist dan um which is uh, i did (laughs) tell us about that it was actually
0: jen's suggestion uh we were watching um watching holy mountain for this for the podcast Mm. and jen said oh my christ that would be a good a good costume and i said we can do that i can you know i've got a great fabricator in the workshop at the moment he can help me with a hat i can cad and print the necklace i've got a very pale wig (laughs) i can wear halfway back on my head It, it does itself yeah, it was just just a bit of fun, and then yeah. I I got a, a DM saying not cancelling you or anything, but just to not let you know, and then they told me one of the things I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna confront it. I'm gonna just say it on the podcast, and I had I hadn't entirely decided whether or not to say it, but um, it's something that he talks about on the commentary to El Topo, El Topo, and he kind of chuckles about it, which definitely makes it worse uh, to hear. But the 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 woman who sort of becomes the female mole, the female El Topo, was a was a basically an acid casualty that he met while they were making the movie. Um he says on the commentary she'd had she'd taken five hundred tabs of acid and her brain was fried. And at first I all I could think was like, Imagine being like an acid casualty and having Yodo's wacky bullshit going on around you. Like, you know, these people with fucking iguanas on strings and you know, priests, ride, uh, cowboys riding naked priests around uh, a cemetery. Like that must have been fucking insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but then during the sexual assault scene, he's like, oh, you know, we didn't have a stunt guy. I just hit her. Uh, it's all like none of it's fake." And like, god damn, that made me feel sick to my stomach. Yeah, I mean the animal, the animal stuff is is gross but I'm to some extent numbed to it and actually like it's one of the reasons, one of the reasons that El Topo uh, is lower on the pole for me than some of his other stuff. Um, The shooting of the crows, all the eviscerated farm animals, all that kind of stuff. Um, On the commentary he says that they were all uh, from a slaughterhouse but they were sick so they couldn't be used for meat, so they bought them from there. But he also says this is the only zoom in the film and it's bloody not so i don't know if i believe him or not
1: yeah and there's a a bit more to the um the assault so is that as far as your knowledge takes you yeah i mean
0: the only the, the the message i got said there are other stories of him being unpleasant on set but i
1: have not been given more information yeah so basically he at the time said that so he's obviously said that he hit her for real, um, but he also said that he raped her for real during the promotion period at the time. Now, since then, he said that um, not so much that his comments were taken out of context, but he kind of he regrets saying it, and it was t- for the promotion of the film, and he wanted to say something shocking. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, there is some extra context and, and people have sort of made the argument that he was kind of mistranslated or um, something was lost in translation um, because apparently the build up to that sequence was um, he asked her to hit him and you know he got consent that you know the scene was going to happen how it was going to happen that he was going to do it and he said that he needed it to be um, like he needed it to feel real and he needed the actress to have no connection with the person performing it. And apparently he's got a, a clause in all of his contracts with actresses that they're not allowed to sleep with the director, um, which is quite bizarre. Um, but yeah, so he kind of encouraged her to hit him for real and apparently got a bruised rib. Um, and then he was sufficiently fired up to, um, you know, in his words, rape her for real yeah, and it, it's just obviously, like I say, you could separate art and the artist, but there's some things that are pretty impossible to um, to forgive. But there is, you know, uh, like I say, there is the argument that he was mistranslated and there's the argument that he was just saying something shocking and it didn't actually happen. Um, but unfortunately, the actress herself has never commented. Um, and in fact... People have tried to track her down to to get her to comment. And unfortunately, she, you know, she's vanished. Um, so who knows? Who knows what's happened there? But yeah, sorry to hit you and the precious arrowheads with something incredibly unpleasant around uh, a piece of art that they probably love. Um, but, you know, like I say, it is out there and it, it, it was kind of, yeah, it, it was something that, Kim Newman kind of mentioned in his review of A Little More Flesh. um, He sort of got that kind of influence. Um, But A Little More Flesh is about exploitation from that time, exploitation cinema. And El Topo is said to be kind of the first midnight movie, isn't it? And I think there was quite a lot of this kind of unpleasantness around at that time um, in the 70s. I'm not saying that to excuse it. I'm just saying... I mean, I'm obviously not saying that to excuse it because I made a whole film about it, but, um, yeah, Dan, you've been quiet for a long time. Um, talk to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just just didn't want to talk over you. Yeah, it's interesting,
0: like, the way he describes it in, on the commentary, I can very easily see that he is, like, a couple of words away from saying what you said. Mm. He does strike me as a bit of an edgelord, like i yes. i would if 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 she came forward and said no obviously that didn't happen like you know we talked about it we talked about the fact that what was going to happen and and he needed to get fired up for the emotional side of it i did too we, you know we talked it all through like if she came out and said all that mm. i'd be it, you know i'd completely believe that he just said it to to shock people because look at his fucking films these are not the films of someone who isn't in the business
1: of trying really hard to shock people. This is it. This is a hundred percent. Yeah. I I think that that interpretation, you know, it's exactly that if if the complaint had come from her or, you know, if the explanation had come from her, then this would be a completely different conversation. Um, And it's interesting. He does use the word rape out of context there's I think it is it in Yodorovsky's June the documentary where he talks about um wanting to rape Frank Herbert's work or rape Frank Herbert. I can't remember, but he uses that word in that context and then says, you know in a good way of course so Jesus yeah, I think he's got um like his understanding of that word is slightly problematic um to say the least so um yeah uh what what can I say? And and obviously, when I was a teenager watching Holy Mountain, and uh, when I was a little bit older watching El Topo, I I wasn't aware of this stuff. But you know, I am always the one that says separate art and the artist. So um, I, I I can't really talk. Yeah,
0: it's difficult. It's very difficult. I I do think there's a there's a fuck. I don't know. I'm um, yeah. I don't know. It's really it's really tough. This has certainly hasn't changed my mind about that. It has added shades of difficulty Yeah. My <laughs> my opinions on that yeah like I'm sorry that that's all we've got to talk about I'm, I, I'm sorry you didn't get what you had hoped for which was just me like delightedly espousing the values of um, Holy Mountain <laughs> yeah
1: yeah and and you know just to make it clear this wasn't going to be a trap I wasn't going to like let you go on about it and then say aha but damn, did a you bomb. know no no I, w- <laughs> I would never do that um you know i just i I struggle with this i really do i struggle with it because ethically i feel like i have to talk about this stuff because i'm aware of it if i was ignorant to it then you know it would be a bit easier but i find it hard to just sit on you know on, on this kind of information not discuss it of course yeah it's a tricky one but but also and to make this clear to the precious arrowheads none of my a conflict on this is coming from oh we do the official arrow video podcast so we've got to say only nice things about arrow video products no. um you know because that's not the case at all they give us a lot of freedom um and i think the success of the podcast is is down to that freedom um but you know i got a bit of backlash off the back of long good friday and um yeah i was kind of dreading doing this episode to be honest <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry that's all right um yeah, no, but, I mean, not at all. But it's got but,
0: birds um, coming out of bullet wounds, Sam. It's got birds coming out of bullet wounds. It has, it has. Um, what? It's great. <laughs> it's a great
1: um, film. Yeah. Uh,
0: I'm struggling. <laughs> I'm struggling a lot with this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a... Fuck, I don't know. Like The thing is, I've been very... Uh, like i've sort of soaked up anything of his output that i could find over the years you know whether it was comics or whatever i've even got his fucking tarot deck but wow yeah (laughs) it's very boring very pedestrian considering (laughs) uh i suspect it is because he is to some extent a traditionalist with tarot right but yeah i guess like other than a handful of interviews here and there like little things i've not and uh, and seeing him talk live on stage at the bfi once um mm-hmm. i i just didn't know that much about like the actual making of these films
1: now is that is that part of the curse of being a modern um cinema head is it that we know too much about i mean again i'm not saying that these things should be unsaid and shouldn't come to light when they've happened but I, what am i saying then in that case yeah maybe i don't want to go down this not line not of, not that it's thought.
0: not not that anyone would choose not to but that it is very like that it is impossible now to enjoy films with the ignorance of yeah. the past yeah yeah do you remember when no one thought Mel Gibson was a piece of shit? Yeah. Like, you know, you it, like it, nowadays, it, it, as mm. someone who knows even remotely anything, you can't watch his movies without them having a different light
1: to them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but then the, the problem there is, um, and again, not defending Mel Gibson, let's just remove that name from the context of this conversation. Um, but... Everyone on the planet is a piece of shit (laughs) to certain degrees, (laughs) right? There there is no one who doesn't have a dark side. Uh, And, you know, these are kind of uh, it's on a spectrum, isn't it? Obviously. Um, But everyone, you know, no one is perfect. No one is um, holy. Beyond Uh, reproach. Exactly. So. Everyone's going to make mistakes. Again, some mistakes are more extreme than others. Some um, mistakes aren't mistakes. <laughs> some of them are very deliberate. Well, yeah, and and that's another thing to sort of factor into this is that not everyone has the same brain chemistry. Um, and sometimes it can be hard to imagine uh, the existence of real-life human monsters. But unfortunately, there are real-life human monsters, and there are uh, some of them in the film industry. Well, um, I think... I feel like I've said it
0: before on this podcast, but uh, the film industry, you know, capitalism rewards psychopaths. Yes, and, we have had this. And, and, yeah. yeah, exactly. And the the film industry uh, rewards creative psychopaths.
1: Yes, if you want more Ego-driven. conversation about that, go to Sweet Smell of Success. That is the, the podcast oh, yeah, we have go. this conversation. Um, but yeah, you know, l- lest we repeat ourselves, Dan... Are there any extras that you loved on this disc? Oh,
0: Topo? fuck. Um, yeah, I watched more of the extras on El Topo. There's, there's a nice thing about the origin of the Midnight movie and how that came yes. to be. Yeah, that's um, great. That's a, that's a really good, little, that really good interview. Um, I think it must be uh, archival, um, partly because Yudorovsky isn't entirely white-headed. Um, but also because the graphics don't feel like the way right. they do the subtitles. It's quite selective subtitling. He's speaking in English, but with a very heavy accent. Um, right. So they've only subtitled some bits, and they're kind of flashing all over the screen. It doesn't feel like Arrow's normal style. But um, but it's a good, uh, good interview. Yeah, it's just... I mean, they've done a really good job. There's the dub version of El Topo. Uh, I, I never quite know. Like, I think... I, I'm pretty sure it's El Topo, but uh, maybe it's El Topo. I kind of drift back and forth. Anyway... There's, yeah, there's three different versions. There's different um, aspect ratios for the, for the main film, and then there's a dub version, the English dub as well. It's, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the usual Arab biz. They've done a lovely job.
1: <laughs> That's it. They, they have, and, and this is the thing. Like, it's of a time. These films are of a time, and they are important historical artefacts. Let's, let's put it Absolutely. that way. Um, and have they ever been released in a form better than this? No. Um, and if you're a, a, a Jodorowsky obsessive, then you have been able to separate art and the artist because you will be aware of all of this information that we've been talking about. Um, and the films stand alone. You know, I, I, I as you may have guessed, I do prefer El Topo to to Holy Mountain, though it kind of used to be the other way around yeah i just and, and the other thing is dan i don't do any drugs right <laughs> <laughs> i i you know it, drugs are not for me partly because of family history um and so i think if you're a weed head then a weed head. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a weed head go for it <laughs> you know you, you there's loads in here you're probably gonna love but yeah i just find it a weirdly cynical and bitter film holy mountain um kind of like a hippie saying peace and love one minute and creating a sex cult the next like um you know the the hypocrisy of the pious yes oh my god yeah
0: yeah so yeah what so is that is that the reason that you prefer Uh, el topo i assume it was just because it was a western and you love your cowboys that dan
1: that is a hundred percent (laughs) it it's it's a cool looking cowboy with a big beard dressed in black you know yeah it's it's imagine if raffi
0: from the league was a cowboy (laughs) yeah and and who wouldn't like that film um oh my god imagine a remake of holy mountain with
1: uh playing the uh, playing the mole Well, what's kind of interesting, um, so with Holy Mountain, do you know who was originally supposed to star in it? No. Um, So I've just read quite an amazing book um, released earlier this year called One, Two, Three, Four, The Beatles in Time by Craig Brown. And uh, there's actually a pretty big crossover between Beatles fans and Holy Mountain and El Topo. Yeah. And there's some on the disc, um, obviously, because... Uh, The Beatles' involvement in both those films and the Psycho Magic documentary has kind of a Beatles vibe. Um, But yeah, John Lennon, George Harrison, Yoko Ono basically rescued El Topo from potential obscurity. And George Harrison was almost the star of Holy Mountain. Um, Wow. Yeah, but he didn't want to do nudity. He didn't want people to see his ass. (laughs) Really? Yeah, and so Jodorowsky refused to accommodate him um which is maybe one of the worst directorial decisions in cinema history um was he was he going to play the the Christ figure or was he going to play the um the um alchemist i think he was going to play the alchemist because I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the alchemist because um yeah jodorowsky says that he just played it himself so it must be um okay but yeah. there's a lot more Christ-arse than alchemist arse Oh, maybe it is the Christ figure then. It must be because I mean that's more logical, isn't it? Um, yeah. Although if, you know that's a that's a lovely dig at John if George is playing Jesus. I mean, yeah. Or, or is it because John said the Beatles were bigger than Jesus? So maybe it's a dig at, at, at George. But but yeah. Um, oh, by the way, I'm not saying that one, two, three, four goes into this in any detail. I already knew this. I I do like the Beatles quite a lot. But what's kind of interesting about the book is, you know, it's a really enjoyable read. It's very fast paced and um, it kind of goes through the whole history of of the band, sort of diving into parallel universes kind of briefly. And it kind of takes a fun look at, at the insanity of the Beatles' impact on culture, politics, and their fans. But yeah, what makes it kind of relevant is so much of the book is about the Beatles as false idols themselves. So it kind of humanizes them and ridicules the false religion that's built up around them and, you know, the fetishization of objects that they touched and the desire for locks of their hair and modern-day pilgrimage to the places they grew up. And, yeah, they were turned into figures of worship and they themselves yeah. turned to Hinduism to, to cope with it all. Um, so you can, you can see why they'd be attracted to El Topo and especially Holy Mountain. But, yeah, I I, I don't know. There's just something in there about the time, basically. You know, it's a time that the Beatles were, you know, one of the most important cultural events. Forces, yeah. Yeah, forces. And, And this was very much... These films were very much made in that period where, you know, the biggest band in the world could fuck about writing nonsense songs and... Um, creating, you know, fake bands and, you know, weird religions. And, yeah, I don't know. John
0: talks about uh, the score for El Topo being done by cutting up bits of classical music, like sheet music, and throwing them in the air and sticking them back together, which is how they did the outro for Hey Jude. But then, ironically, like, one of the things that Yulirovsky is railing against is the fact that it's celebrity that's fucked film. He's like, you can't cast a known actor because they bring too much baggage. Something I've been talking about recently with, with some friends is is that it's so hard to get past the character of a, an established actor. Even, even character actors nowadays are known enough that you go, oh, it's that guy from that thing. And it colours the performance, no matter how good they are.
1: I don't know um, about that. I don't know about that. I've always loved the, you know... I love the baggage that certain actors carry with them. Like, oh, you know, good, ca- good
0: casting will use it to its advantage. Yeah, but I think and 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 Jodorowsky is is himself is more complaining about the fact that they're given power over it creatively that they can mm. change things. And I assume he's talking about things like George Harrison not wanting to show people his bum, <laughs> but. But he's, yeah, so the fact that he's complaining about this, he's saying, oh, you know, celebrity and the cult of celebrity is, is what's ruining cinema. And actually, he wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for the, one of the most famous men in the world saying, oh, put this on after my, uh, my short film in yeah. this New York theatre, and I'll yeah. go up on stage and tell everyone to stay. Yeah. And, and, and suddenly he's got a career. He talks about the fact that they financed the film on post-dated checks, and if they went back to Mexico without having sold it, they'd have been arrested yeah so you know he he owes his entire career
1: to celebrity this is it and, and George and being harrison, lucky enough to hitch his wagon to it george harrison in general is a force for good um in cinema um you know yeah um, lots lots of important films were were made because of george harrison but yeah and john lennon obviously was the one that really supported um jodorowsky but um yeah and 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 he should have cast lennon in holy mountain he would have got his ass out he'd have gotten his (laughs) lennon 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 as lennon as christ yeah
0: and harrison as the alchemist
1: oh yeah now you're talking
0: imagine imagine that film yeah i and again Uh, and then five rounds of test screenings
1: (laughs) and you know what we talk about the cult of celebrity and all that but um would i be sitting here saying the same stuff about holy mountain if it starred two of my all-time heroes, I don't think so. I think it would probably be in my top five of all time if it starred John Lennon and George Harrison. So there um, you go. But you've always got uh, Ringo's turn in Candy. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Good old Ringo, bless him. Or that um, caveman movie he did. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely, you know, I would recommend that people read one, two, three, four. Um, it, it's it's an amazing book structurally. It's a bit like having 20 different tabs open at once. Chapters are relatively short and they kind of jump all over the place. So I don't know if it's been deliberately designed for an internet attention span. But, you know, I certainly welcomed it. Um, it's it sort of it's structured the way my brain now works. So um, it's definitely an enjoyable read. Shall we move on to recommendations based on these films? Let's do it. Hey, do you want to go first or shall I go first? You go first. You go first.
0: Okay, so my first one is another surrealist film. Uh, it's a Spanish film, mm-hmm. uh, although it's in French. Uh, it's from 1973. It's written and directed by Fernando Arabal, um, who was the writer of Fando and Lis, Yodorovsky's uh, first film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's called I Will Walk Like a Crazy Horse.
2: Nice. I would go That's... so
0: far as to say it's my favorite of all of the Arabal and Yodorovsky canon. Oh, wow. I prefer it. It's not as visually lush mm-hmm. as uh, as Holy Mountain, uh, and it certainly has some difficult imagery in it, mm-hmm. but it is an astonishing film. It's absolutely incredible. There's a box set of three of um, Araba's first three films from cult epics in the States. Uh, so his first film, Vive la Muerte, um, which is great. This one... Uh, I Walked Like a Crazy Horse. And then also Guernica Tree, which I found a little disappointing. It's a great box set. I don't think any of them have been released in the UK. i fucking love Arrow to pick them up. There's a second box set with three or four more of his films in it, which I have and have never even opened, which is embarrassing. So I should do that. I Basically, I got it. And then I think Tony was like, oh, disappointing. <laughs> and then it just dropped right down the list. Yeah. I walk Like a Crazy Horse It's an absolute fucking beauty. Um, it's got a lot of similarities to the... Like, the, the, the sort of impetus for the narrative has a lot of similarities to Santa Sangre, which I, to be honest, found a little disappointing as well, the Jodorowsky right. film. A, a rich young man uh, is burning it into the desert in a jeep at the beginning of the film... Uh, played over news footage fake news footage and police radio comms about uh, a rich woman having been found and her uh, dead and her son being missing mm-hmm. and they have to find him cuz is he has he been killed is he responsible for the murder we don't know and he basically just goes and like hides out in the desert and he meets this guy called marvel who's uh they call him a dwarf I know I don't know if that's the correct term in this instance but he's a, a, a diminutive man And he seems to be a sort of spiritual higher being. He can talk to animals, he can control the sun. He is generally wonderful. And this guy falls in love with him on a sort of spiritual level. But the only way he knows how to process this is to bring him back to society. And this guy is sort of a a representation of nature and all of the forces of nature and obviously is to some extent corrupted by his, his time in the modern world. And by modern, I mean 1973. It's absolutely fucking amazing. Uh, I kind of suspect, like, there's some child nudity in it, uh, which is possibly why it's not made it out, made it over here. Um, not in a sexualized sense; it's all religious imagery, religious iconography.
2: Well, there's, but, there's,
0: there's child nudity in Holy Mountain. Yeah, there's not these kind of close-ups. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> there's a. There's a. Uh, yeah. There's a. The wounds of Christ inflicted on a child's genitals oh, at Jesus. one point. Uh, it is honestly like if you have even the slightest stomach for surrealist cinema, it is a modern high point. I, I might go so far and I might regret this later. I'll go so far as to say, I think it's the best surrealist film in color.
1: Blimey. Well, there you go. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I don't know how to react to that cause I haven't seen it. Um, I haven't even heard of it. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a definitely a, a, a worthy choice. Um, as for me i think you would have heard of my picks um i'm hoping that there's no repeats here but my first recommendation is the last movie um was that one of yours dan it's not although it's a great film it's an amazing film and um there's a really beautiful indicator blu-ray um i think the limited edition is sold out now but um i think the standard edition is available Um, Now, this film was released two years after Easy Rider changed cinema forever, um, also starring Dennis Hopper, obviously. Now, the last movie wasn't as well received, uh, despite winning the Critics' Prize at Venice. Um, It kind of shifted from a European darling to uh, an apparent vanity project when it landed in the States. Um, And the backlash was so extreme that Hopper didn't direct again for almost a decade. And, you know, with this an Easy Rider, it's like heartbreaking that he didn't direct for that long. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, revisiting the last movie now, we lost a lot of great cinema during that wilderness period, I'd say. Um, Yes, it is a confusing jumble of ideas, partly because um, Dennis Hopper's pal, Jodorowsky, um, encouraged Hopper to recut the original linear narrative, But, you know, uh, confusing jumble of ideas, but what ideas and what a jumble. Um, It's ostensibly about a wrangler named Kansas, played by Hopper, working on a Western, I love my Westerns, uh, film in Peru. It it explores the potential dangerous impact of films and film culture on the lives of those who make and watch them in a very poetic way. So, um, yeah, not a million miles away from Holy Mountain, but for some reason feels less kind of cynical. I don't know. Um, but yeah, you're a fan of the last movie, Dan?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've i not seen it for absolutely years, but I remember being very like, very struck by it.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's stunning. I might pick because... up the indicated disc. Oh, it's definitely worth it. Like amazing extras as well. Um, lots of good Hopper stuff on there. Um, but yeah, what's next from you? My, the next is my favourite black and white surrealist film. <laughs> uh-oh uh-oh
0: uh from 1930 okay um, it's it's large door nice by louis Brunuel. It this is pretty easy to get hold of uh, there's a beautiful blu-ray set of it from the bfi in the uk uh it's on a uh, like a a set with a Chandalu. um i i I saw it after, some years after I first saw En Chandelou. Like a lot of people around my age, I suspect I saw En Chandelou for the first time at the Museum of the Moving Image near Waterloo Station, where I would insist we went every time my family were in London. Um, they had that big like white fiberglass hand with the ants coming out of it next to a screen, and they just played En Chandelou on loop, and I was fixated by it. But uh, L'Age d'Or is a much lighter affair. It's ostensibly a comedy... Uh, it's almost a, a romantic slapstick in that it's about two young lovers desperately trying to get it on. Um, and circumstances, and by circumstances, I mean, you know, society, religion, all of the things that uh, the Surrealists were busy lambasting, like, just constantly conspire to make it not happen. And they constantly are unable to get laid. But it's done... It, it, Brunoil did it without Dali. And I don't think it, like as much as I like the work they did together I do feel Dali was nothing but a massive ego (laughs) like not nothing but you know but he couldn't you couldn't have that one without the other Mm. Um, and there's a sort of there's some pure Brunel going on in Large Door it's absolutely beautiful Um, I saw it at the Prince Charles a, a number of years ago Hopefully that will happen again one day. But um, yeah, it's an absolute treat. Apparently uh, apparently, Dali and he were going to be working on it together and they had a big argument at the beginning and then Brunel chased him off set with a hammer on the first day and then did it on his own.
1: Brilliant. I love it. Yeah, great recommendation, Dan. My next one is also uh, a black and white surrealist masterpiece, so that's why I got a little bit nervous when you started talking. But um, And, you know, this is one that maybe people have avoided because they think it's hard work but if you watch and enjoy holy mountain then i believe that nothing is too much hard work for you um cinema lover uh so watch eight and a half um for the love of god oh yeah um it's felini's surrealist masterpiece about a director suffering from director's block i personally prefer la dolce Vita. I would recommend that one to literally every single film fan in the world. It is transcendent. Um, But 8.5, which is considered Fellini's best, is wonderful. Um, It has the mix of kind of powerful imagery and satire that Holy Mountain fans probably love. um, And it's just a touchstone classic. Um, Fellini was presumably a big influence on Jodorowsky. You can see it all over Holy Mountain, uh, though... uh, Jodorowsky was uh, the, the son of um, of circus clowns, wasn't he? Or circus performers. So, um, you know, maybe he just loves the whole circus vibe in, in the same way that Fellini does. But um, anyway, my point is, if you like Holy Mountain or El Topo or Topo, or however you say it, then watch Eight and a Half, watch La Dolce Vita, and bask in the glory of, of pure cinema. Um, Lovely. Yeah it from me yeah good so that's films that we've watched that relate to holy mountain in some way but we don't just watch films that relate to holy mountain in some way we watch films over the the past couple of weeks that that we take to record these things um <laughs> i'm doing such a long intro this week sweet Here are <laughs> our recommendations from the past couple of weeks dan what have you been watching
0: so this is the 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 end. Uh, maybe it's just the end of a chapter rather than the end of the journey. But uh, back at a, a Fright Fest. Oh, fuck. 2019? When did we have Issa Lopez on? Was that 2019? Uh, I think that was 2018. Fucking hell. Well, it took me a long time to find it. So I asked Issa to recommend some Mexican genre directors that maybe we hadn't heard of and to my delight she like immediately off the top of her head said oh yeah absolutely Carlos Enrique uh, Tabuada you have to see his films and she she recommended three and I think I've recommended as I've seen them over the over the years they're not super easy to get hold of as I've seen them over the years I've I've recommended them every time because they've always been great but one had always eluded me I managed to pick up a dvd of it didn't have any English subtitles on it um, spent ages looking for a subtitle file online, have now f- watched it with English subtitles in the last couple of weeks, and then also found out that I think there is an American DVD with English subtitles. Maybe. But you may do what I did, which is think you're buying with English subtitles and and not get it. So, uh, But there is a subtitle file floating around online if you want to pull the DVD onto your computer it's from 1975, as I said it's by Carlos Enrique Tabuada Um, it's called Poison for the Fairies and it is an absolute fucking gem it's so good it's about uh, a little girl uh, who with with a relatively wealthy family who goes to a new school and ends up meeting uh, a little girl from not a wealthy family who's a bit of a social outcast she Is uh, very into, like, spooky stuff. Uh, Her parents both died in a car crash. She's being raised by a nanny and her very sick grandmother who uh, lives in a sort of room at the top of the house. And she tells people that she's a witch, the little girl. She says she's a shape-shifting witch. She's actually a very old woman. Um, But she pretends to be a little girl uh, and she's a very powerful witch. And the two girls become friends and the the rich girl uh, is... A little suspicious, but basically believes him, but believes her, believes the that her friend is is supernatural, uh, and it's it's just about their relationship. It has an incredible ending; like it's great all the way through. But the oh my goodness, the ending is so good. But it's one of those films where you just don't see the adults, like literally, unless they're a dead body, or uh, a witch in a dream, or in one instance, the grandmother who may also be a witch we think like the little girl thinks you never see an adult's face it's all shot kind of tom and jerry so like knees down back of heads that's it visually it's absolutely stunning and yeah like i said i can't get enough of that ending so it's really really worth your time tracking down if you're in the states there's there's a couple of there's a version of the dvd on ebay at the moment amazon have one with an especially ugly cover that looks like it That in the review seems to say it has subtitles. But like I said, if it doesn't have subtitles, there are other ways.
1: Nice. Yeah. Um, uh, that is one of Tony's favourites, actually, um, who we've mentioned on this podcast already. And of rightly course, so, yeah, yeah, many he also times. loves Jodorowsky. Um, but yeah, Psychotronic Tony, who uh, uh, is a good friend of Dan and I's and is a good resource for um, very obscure uh, exploitation movies. Um, I'm not sure if he'll be able to help you precious arrowhead track this down um, <laughs> but who knows Long gone <laughs> is the
0: psychotronic store how sad
1: yeah yeah so um, he might
0: come back online one day
1: yeah yeah fingers crossed um, but uh, Dan and I uh, work as a team and so he will recommend you a film that is very difficult to get hold of and I will recommend a film that is very easy to get hold of um, starting with, The Bride with the White Hair, um, which is about to get uh, a glorious, beautiful Blu-ray release via Eureka. In fact, it is out today if you're listening to this podcast uh, on the day it goes up and out now if you don't. Now, I got to review this one for SFX Magazine, so I'm not going to go into loads of detail. Because I feel that that betrays some kind of trust. (laughs) If you want to know my exact thoughts, then um, please buy SFX Magazine. In fact, subscribe to SFX Magazine. And we need magazines, and they are going to be in trouble again um, as a result of of this lockdown stuff. So please buy magazines. Please subscribe, whether that's SFX or Total Film or Empire, whoever it is. but yeah i can't not recommend the bride with the white hair to our audience um it is uh, a cult exploitation martial arts masterpiece and there are great extras on the disc um but yeah that's all i'll say about that just now just watch it it's good um dan what's next from you an israeli surrealist (laughs) sci-fi there we go this is the beauty of our of our relationship dan (laughs) (laughs) Our repartee. Um,
0: Yeah, so this is actually comparatively easy to get hold of. It's only a DVD, but Kino Loba put it out in the States, and it's still still in print. Uh, It's called Santa Clara. It's from 1996, directed by Ari Folman and Uri Sivan. Um, It's an Israeli film based on a Czech novel um, about Clara, who is a psychic girl, a bit of an outcast at a school that feels pretty post-apocalyptic, And she uses her psychic powers at one point to uh, help all her classmates cheat on a maths test. And there's a big, like, hoo-ha at the school because they all get perfect uh, scores. And so they do a big investigation into it. Um, But the uh, ostensibly, it's a love story. She is falling for uh, a guy at the school, but if she falls in love, she will lose her psychic powers. And then the film itself is a sort of... Very fractured narrative because it follows loads of these peripheral characters around her and the way in which they interact with her. It's very stylish. It's not perfect by any means, but it's certainly very interesting. Um, hadn't seen a huge number uh, of Israeli films. Um, uh, I was recommended it by an artist friend, Taishani, who said it was a uh, like a, a favoured uh, film of hers from her youth, and so she got me a copy of it, and uh, it's great.
1: Cool that's yeah. it excellent i think you kind of you, you whenever you say something is easy to get hold of i always think oh right, that's on dvd or blu-ray in the uk then and it's always yeah it's easy to to get hold of all you have to do is go to this tree in the middle of a park and walk 20 paces <laughs> and say badger and it'll drop out of the sky like there's always there's there's a floating skull <laughs> up on
0: <laughs> up on Pr- primrose hill <laughs> but you have to not look at it directly
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, um, you, you don't have whisper to do its that. name under your breath. <laughs> you don't have to do any of that for my next recommendation, but I would recommend that you get it sooner rather than later. Because, um, and this this goes for you as well, Dan. Uh, Mothra, the Mothra Eureka Blu-ray um, is also out this month. It is magnificent but it's on a limited edition disc. There's just 3,000 of these, and it will sell out. Um, So pre-order. You'll get two versions of the film, the English version and the longer Japanese cut, as well as tons of extras, including a perfect interview with Kim Newman, um, our friend and hero, uh, Kim Newman, on the history and legacy of Mothra. You don't need me to tell you the plot of the film. Just buy it and file it next to your uh, Gamera box set. And if you didn't get a Gamera box set in time, don't make the same mistake with Mothra. It's out on the 16th of November, and I obviously recommend this beautiful release. It is uh, one of the greatest films ever made. That's it. I've just pre-ordered it. Yes! (laughs) Excellent. Like, literally while you were talking. (laughs) (laughs) See, (laughs) I thought you'd gone quiet, and I was like... Can Dan, could it be possible that Dan doesn't like Mothra? No, he's just busy getting it. Um, you should do the same, <laughs> precious arrowhead. Um, right, let's go into, Are we got, yes, we are going into extra features. Uh, extra features. Extra features, extra features. Now, extra I've got features. a couple, Dan. You've got something. Should we go first with you? What, what have you got?
0: Well, yeah, I've got, uh, I got two. Got two for us. Um, first uh, off, uh, you'll be very pleased to know that I managed to have a little Skype chat with Stephen Scarlatta, the director of Yodorovsky's dune Blimey. about what it was to what it was like to to be with the man for that long and to be so heavily um steeped in you know this this amazing film that never happened so here's that So, uh, you join me in media res conversation with Stephen Scalata, producer, writer, um, general nice man. Uh, Stephen, hello. How you doing today? Hey, man. Thanks for joining me. Amazing. I'm, yeah, what an auspicious night to be talking. (laughs) (laughs) Very Very. exciting times.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's like late over there right now where you are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like half, uh, quarter
0: past seven. So I don't know if you're aware of the uh, the podcast that I
3: do. Do you know the Arrow Video label, the distribution label? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, uh, yeah, I do know the label. I, I unfortunately I don't. I get a lot of my Blu-rays free now because I just can't afford to. I just uh, after buying so many DVDs and then Blu-ray came out. I had to, <laughs> like I was like I, I was like all right I can't buy any more because half <laughs> the ones I was buying I wasn't watching and I love Blu-rays I've been very fortunate I work with Jim Coons here and there oh nice it, he's been very nice to give me like when he he works on a Blu-ray he gives me like an extra Blu-ray and and so I've been able to have like a collection of Blu-rays just because of him he's been so kind but Arrow Blu-rays are incredible I should have looked and seen which arrows I have. But yeah, you, know, you guys are like top notch. Of course, I mean I, I'm <laughs> definitely aware of Arrow. I mean, it's well, like, trust me, if I was buying Blu-rays, I would have a tremendous amount of <laughs> Arrow. <laughs> well, I can't. You guys are amazing.
0: Yeah, I can't take any responsibility for the quality of the discs. But I've been lucky enough to be involved peripherally through the podcast that they uh, they sort of sponsor. So yeah, for a couple of years now. Uh, they've let me and my, uh, at the time of its conception, housemates, but now just, you know, remote friend, um, Sam Ashurst. Uh, we, we do a, like a bi-weekly, uh, as in fortnightly, every two weeks, uh, podcast where we choose a, a film or a release from the Arrow catalogue. We talk nice. about it and then we recommend other things off the back of that. And then we just sort of chat about stuff we've seen lately. It's normally about an hour, hour and a half. But we have a little section at the end that we call extra features uh, and it's basically when one of us gets off our arse and, and, <laughs> and, and hounds someone to talk to us about something. And sometimes it's contextual, so as is this one, because on the episode we recorded on Sunday, we were talking about the Yodorovsky box set that Arrow have just done. They've just rescanned scanned um, four Yodorovsky films, um, put them out on Blu ray. And sometimes they're just timely. So Sam, who has a yeah. day job as a journalist, Will sometimes have snippets from interviews that he did that he, we can add
3: to the podcast, that kind of thing. Oh, cool. So you must, I'm looking at it right now, like, oh shit, that looks awesome, this box set. Yeah, they've done a beautiful job. Wow. It looks, yeah, it looks phenomenal. I can't, you know, it's like, I can't believe it. It's like in the 90s when I discovered him. I still have it in my garage. Like, I, I've been meaning to one day get my old VHS of the Holy Mountain and convert it just so the world can see what I originally had to watch, the quality I had to watch his stuff, you know, fifth generation, blurred. Man, yeah, so so many of us have so many films that we love
0: that, we, like, you look back on it and you're like, how did I even sit through this? I, seriously,
3: like, yeah, like, it, there was this, there's this bad shit movie called, like, Blood Savage forever. I couldn't, blo- is it Blood Savage? It was this weird Texas Chancel Massacre ripoff this guy having like uh i don't know it it was just this really bizarre horror film and it was like the worst quality ever and then for a split time it was on amazon prime and it was beautiful it was like all of a sudden i could see like he had like this dude had in his attic all kinds of people hooked up to crazy like car machine like you know he was like infusing cars with people and you can you were never able to see that in the VHS, but on Amazon Prime, it's not on it anymore, unfortunately. You could see all this shit in the background you have never saw before, you know, like when Star Wars went letterbox. And I was like, oh, my God, this is, exists now, and it's beautiful quality. I'm just blown away. <laughs> or us with the Argento stuff, you know? It was like all of a sudden, it, 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 it's, it's amazing with what's been happening just i'm just looking through this arrow holy that uh Jorowski thing and i'm just like this is amazing yeah <laughs> they've, they've done an incredible job like they uh, the yeah.
0: the the stuff the archival stuff they've got hold of plus the new stuff it's really something so obviously you you know you talk about having discovered your on vhs um how did you first come to feel like you were going to be part of a like a documentary about him like you'd already done one documentary um, yes. A musical, a music documentary. So, did, was this like something that you'd always wanted to do, or was it something where an opportunity landed in your lap? Um, no, it was
3: pretty much. Um, yeah, it was just go, like going back to like the late '90s. I was just obsessed with Jodorowsky, and I was mostly obsessed with him because there was nothing really out there about him. The internet was wasn't as full as it is now at information. But I just wanted to know everything I could find out about this man. And then just eventually, there was a weird website that, that was up called The Symbol That Grows. It was like the first Jodorowsky website, I believe. And on there had just a little teaser for Jodorowsky's Dune. Um, like the it, 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 it was the poster from like one of the, I think, the 70s Dune novel, of, uh, The Desert. The guy with his arms up and you see a worm. Yeah, and then and and I was a huge David Lynch Dune fan from the mid '80s. Like I rented that movie, and I was obsessed with Star Wars. And Return came out, and we knew Star Wars was over, but there was this new Dune thing coming out, so I rented Dune, I taped it, and I watched it over and over again because I didn't understand it, but I thought I had to like it because it was the next Star Wars, <laughs> and then just. Throughout, like, elementary school and junior high and high school, I just became, like, really intrigued by David Lynch's Dune. I hadn't read the book. I just knew everything from his Dune. And so now fast forward to, like, finding that website and finding that image of Jodorowsky was going to make Dune. I just became obsessed. And then I just kept going to, like, uh, out here in L.A., there's, like, this library, the cinema library, where, like, I think a lot of, like, um, like I guess like film students and uh, journalists, film journalists go to, to do their research. And so I just go there constantly and just try to find whatever I could about Jodorowsky's Dune. There wasn't a lot. And so I just had to keep digging around. Back then I had to like get stuff from eBay, like buy old star logs and from eBay and just kind of paste together if it wasn't for a documentary it was just for my own I needed to know about this so it was just started off just like an obsession I just want to know everything I can find out about his version of Dune and then just like years later um, at the time I was working with the director Frank Pavich on quite a few projects that were just falling apart and falling apart after our music documentary you mentioned uh, New York Hardcore and then I just pitched to him like why well, don't we How about this, you know, because I just kept collecting all this stuff. And I was like, maybe there is a – and plus there wasn't – Jowrowski wasn't really around. And just the idea of getting an interview with him, you know, would have just been amazing to talk about this idea. And Frank liked the idea and then, you know, and it just began a long journey of trying to get this thing made. So it it started off more of like an obsession. I had no idea in my mind I was going to do a doc at first. It was I just needed to find everything out about this. That's awesome.
0: How did you, like, how did you finally manage to get in contact
3: with Jodo? Like. That was Frank. He found, the director found, it was like an email for his acting agent. And he reached out to him through there. And it took him a long time to get back to us. And I believe we even pitched it to him. And again, it took a really, really long time for him to get back to us. You know, and and so that's that's how it all started, and then that's when the talks finally happened. Because I think what happened, uh, we reached out to him, and then I think during that time, Dan Bannon passed away, uh, David Carradine passed away, and so maybe that's what kind. Of, I'm I'm I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm wondering if that's what kind of woke him up to the idea of maybe it would be worth talking about this. And you know, we didn't you know. Until later that maybe that's when Mobius was sick, you know, and maybe this was the opportunity to start talking about this project and he was more open to it. Wow.
0: Um so how long was the production process? Like from deciding you were going to do the documentary to it coming out in twenty thirteen, what was the like how long did that all take?
3: Oh boy, it took it, it was it was a while. Um because I remember like I remember the um Oh, God, I had to go back because I mean I was still re- when I after I pitched it before we even reached out to Jodorowsky I was still like researching it for even more for a few more years still finding out whatever I could and around that time Mark who did Dune – who has that amazing website Dune Info he started releasing stuff that was never on the internet before about Jodorowsky's Dune he, he's incredible and so that started helping research and. Um, I, I wish I would have looked back at the timetable because it was, it was quite a few years. And then eventually we reached out to Jordorowski. We hadn't heard back from him. I, I would almost say like we, when we reached out to him by the time he reached back out to us was almost like a year. Wow. And then once Jordorowski said yes, the day he said yes, I got producer Travis Stevens on board because I was working on a, uh, Cinemax TV show. And, uh, Travis just happened that day to come to set and that was the day Jorowski told us he'd do it and I approached Travis to produce to be a producer on it and so that was the day Travis Stevens came on board and then when Travis came on board it was still like another I believe it was like another three years of us you know first going out to shoot the interviews in Paris and then coming back and then starting this insane long process of like cutting it like Thirty cuts we had, and then we had to you know go back here and there to get a couple more interviews to fill in. It was a challenging movie to, to edit. Wow. Yeah, so I mean, it's countless years working on this thing. Um, I wish I would have went back to my old folder and, and just because I kept everything from I always kept all my research from it, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was a long time, and some I think from the time. Yeah, like he even said yes to the time it premiered. I can. It was probably like three years at that point, even you know, not even now counting the years. Even before that, I, I was researching it too. So,
0: wow. Do you? Uh, I feel like this is probably a question you've been asked a lot. Maybe it's a question he's been asked a lot. Do you think there's ever
3: a chance of the book getting published? Um, I. I mean, I. I. I hope one day it will. I think there's a lot of. I, I think the challenging thing there is between the producer, Sado, and Mobius. Now that Mobius has passed on, like, the rights of Mobius's art versus what Sado owns in Dune, you know?
2: Yeah.
0: So I
3: think there's, like, a little weird clash there. I think if that ever gets cleared up, then I don't see... The book should be able to come out. But I think there's a little little thing there you know with the passing of of mobius and yeah, so i think yeah. there's like a there might be like because you know it was done in the 70s and i think you know i'm not sure about how the contract a lot really of solid was. contract work going on <laughs> yeah, and, so i think there's a weird uh clash there with you know and then you have jorowski's writing the script is in every panel is Pieces of the script, so so he'd have to
0: sign off on it. For for listeners who haven't seen the documentary, first of all, what are you doing? Go and watch the documentary. Um, but secondly, the, the backbone of the of the Yodorovsky Dune story is this lookbook tome that Yodorovsky produced um, to sell the film around Hollywood, and which has been plundered aesthetically <laughs> over the decades.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it's it's pretty wild. But you know what's even funny is like the, there's this there's this one Twitter feed, uh, Pinland Empire. Um, is that what they're called? Um, I should know. They're I always retweet their stuff. They're awesome. He he he, he even like found like because we always we noticed that a lot of this stuff was like used in Flash Gordon, like because Dune was sold to Dino De Laurentiis, so he had the book. 'Cause you know, even when you watch Dune, I don't know, I always thought that there's parts of the storyboards that are kind of in Lynch's Dune of like when they're escaping the worm. But there's only so many ways I think you could shoot that sequence without maybe, you know. Yeah. But um but yeah, but those guys like pointed out, like, they're these concepts art of these pirate of the the spice smugglers, the space pirates, and then he connected that to the flying guys in Flash Gordon, the winged guys. Yeah. So, you know, I just, people are finding stuff, not even myself, that are influenced in it now too, which is so cool.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I remember, I, I was lucky enough to do a little bit of work on Prometheus, and I remember seeing one of the Jodorowsky-Geiger, um, like, uh, landmarks in the background, of Prometheus, yeah, uh, I love that. And just thinking, oh my god, it's still, it's still happening. People are still borrowing
3: from it. <laughs> that was that's so beautiful. I love that. I love Prometheus. I'm like one of the rare people that really stand
1: up for that movie.
3: People get so mad, but I, I love seeing that imagery in that movie.
0: I would, I would say that Prometheus is a wonderful film if you watch it with the uh, sound off
3: and uh, <laughs> and and your choice of soundtrack over the top. I I got you. I I just I wish they will like release some type of alternative cut to that because it seems like they did cut out a lot of scenes out of that movie that would have made more sense to what people are upset up with it too. So, but anyway, we, we'll get into the whole Prometheus <laughs> conversation. But I've been reading through a lot of the old Prometheus drafts and stuff too. I've been just very fascinated by it from where the seed that movie grew from. And what it turned into, you know, because that's like a whole other wild, you know, like what a what Ridley Scott's true sequel to that would have been, also, you know, to the one we got. But but reading, but I don't know. I'm just fascinated to even begin with about the conception of Alien, and and Obannon's original original visions of it and everything too. So
0: yeah, I think Obannon had some some fascinating stuff in the original script that that obviously got Nick next studio snipped um
3: that would be very interesting to play around with in prequel prequel work oh yeah yeah i I love the his old concept art and everything too it's very interesting Um, that's another yeah i'm sorry no no good Uh, i was gonna say you you write yourself as well like
0: you write fiction as well as producing documentaries is is that has that always been like a side-by-side thing or is that like your attention has turned to that over the years
3: I, I I mean, I moved out from New York to L.A. when I was like 18 and it was mostly become like to write movies. But it was the most insane, hard process of trying to be a writer. So, I mean, so I just kept at it for years. I mean, I just worked many. I was like a mercenary. I just work. I, I came out here. I first started working for Roger Corman on a lot of his um as electrician on a lot of his movies there's a lot of stuff but not on my imdb that i worked on i just kept off because it would just be this long list of 90s insane like action weird b movies i worked on
0: there's a separate steve Scarletta on imdb who i assumed was your name like but not associated with your account uh, who has a load of Roger
3: Cooley credits? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, luckily, yeah, they didn't make it all on there. I mean, I'm, I'm like, uh, you know, I mean, I don't say luckily. <laughs> there's some still on there that are cool, you know, like Connoisseur Three and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, I worked on a lot of, you know, I just while, while I was writing and trying to make it as a writer, I just worked on, a you know, I was like electrician, did art department, worked on all kinds of stuff, and so. Then I did, you know, the music doc and then just kept writing throughout the years. But I didn't sell my first script until I was like 37, I sold Final Girl. And um, yeah, and that was a a different version of what made it to the screen also, because lots of stuff changes along the way. And so I, you know, so on and off, I am still, I have to write because I have to get ideas out of my head, but I'm also, you know, been working on a docu- some documentaries for a while as well so yeah i do both um but yeah the, it is a passion i love writing but it's also just very you know i do a podcast right now on movies that were never made and it gets depressing seeing how many scripts don't get made. Yes. and i understand i wrote so many scripts that they haven't got made and it's just like it's brutal it's, <laughs> you know it's a
0: good podcast man and it, yes it is at times quite depressing
3: <laughs> Yeah, it's a curse being a writer it's like you want to write you keep doing it and that but which one's gonna click with the right person or whatever you know so i'm very lucky and, and humbled i even you know got a couple scripts you know out there i'm very you know very fortunate before we part ways is there
0: anything that our listeners should be keeping an eye out for other than uh, your podcast
3: Oh, yeah. Besides uh, podcast, Best Movies Never Made on iTunes, I'm I'm doing a documentary on movie novelizations, and you can follow us on Twitter, um, at tide underscore in underscore film. If you want to see a picture of a a novelization every single day from our library of novelizations, you know, we're also on Instagram. Come come check that out. That, you know, that's been a fun documentary. Got to hang, hang out with like Alan Dean Foster and David Morell who wrote the Rambo novelization. So yeah, yeah, you just get to point point a spotlight on all these novelization writers who I don't think get enough respect for, you know, having these books that, you know, really meant a lot to a lot of us growing up, you know, before DVDs and stuff. So that's you know. So yeah, come check that out if you if you're interested in novelizations. Nice. Uh what's your what's your Twitter for everybody? Oh, it's my name. It's at Stephen with a P-H, Scarlatta, my last name. And uh, yeah, again, on Twitter and on Instagram. Nice. Well, man, thank you
0: so much for taking the time to to talk to me.
3: Oh, no, no worries. Um, man. Thank you for having me on. I greatly appreciate good catching up with you again.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. And very appropriate. Well done, Dan. That, that's excellent. And you have another delight for us. I do indeed. Uh, I mentioned her earlier, and it
0: may have sounded like a name drop, but the lovely Taishani, um, Turner Prize winning fine artist, uh, the person who recommended um, St. Clara to me, uh, and I uh, had a chat about Yodorovsky, but more specifically about the separation of art and artist. And she is an artist, Sam.
1: Well, let's, so from let's, the other side, perfect. Let's let's have a little listen.
0: I'm joined by uh, Ty Shani, um, a fantastic artist and uh, a good friend of mine. Um, Ty, for our cineast listeners, do you want to describe your place in the art world?
4: Sure. I work a lot with performance and large installations. Um, I also write. A lot of the work I make kind of revolves around text that I write. I published a book last year called Our Fatal Magic, which was a, a collection of all the texts that were part of this project that I'd been working on for the last five years called DC Productions. At the core of what I do is thinking about post-patriarchal realities and feminist thinking um, using utopian strategies, speculative kind of fiction and a lot of cinematic references in the work and inspiration as well.
0: We were having a conversation about Yudorowski, uh, and Sam yeah. and I have just recorded the, the podcast about the, the new box set um, yeah. that Arrow have out and it's a, a perennial subject for us. The difficulty of art and artist and the potential need for separation therein um and it's something that you and i've touched on over our you know our time to and i wanted to talk to you about it now if that's okay
4: yeah i mean i think you know i've been thinking a lot about this because i think it is i guess one of the kind of branches of what is known as cancel culture in a way isn't it um but i think it's it's kind of complicated, obviously, with, with um, works made by people. I think, you know, there's always, if you look, you know, if you look at the kind of subtext of any kind of cultural artifact, I think you will find certain ideologies within it. And some of these ideologies are, I think, specifically driven by the, the maker of the work, and some are social, right? Like there's mm-hmm. some that are... Are to do with when the the work was made or, you know, so let's say um, it's difficult to kind of give a feminist critique um, or, or have, a, you know, very high kind of expectations in terms of feminism of a film that was made, let's say, in the 1930s, right? I mean, there are some... Exceptions, of course. But so I think there's always this kind of interplay between uh, what is socially acceptable at the time of a film or a book or, or whatever being made and what is really driven by the person. But I think that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about it because... I admit, for me, you know, Khodorovsky was a very big influence when I was younger. My parents were really into him. Um, I, I met him, actually. Um, I ran a space in, in London that had an exhibition of his drawings that he did with his current partner. You know, I felt very touched. I think the first film I saw of his was Santa Sangre. Nice. I felt very strongly nice. about it and... Um, then I saw Holy Mountain and my parents loved Holy Mountain and you know, so it was so I definitely felt very compelled by his work, but also like quite yeah, I found it very, very, very powerful, let's say. I think I said to you that uh, when we spoke very briefly <laughs> about it, I think that I said something like, you know, this is a case where I think I would separate the art from the artist, but I think I'm going to renege on that actually. Um because I think that if you are looking at what are the kind of factors that drive um, this you know like need and urgent necessity to 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 look at um, works under an ethical light as well as like a creative one, hmm. if you kind of are not able to extend your solidarity to experiences that don 't affect you directly then it 's meaningless isn 't it and I think you know in the case of chodorovsky uh, we 're talking about a film. Where um he performed um unsimulated there's an unsimulated rape scene, basically in El topo that's what we're talking about, isn't it yeah, yeah, and I think you know for anyone who suffered any kind of uh sexual violence, the idea that that's something that is acceptable you know is not acceptable, right, yeah, so I think yeah. that it often like comes down to this idea of proximity, actually. But then without the willingness and the kind of ethical need to deploy your um, kind of empathy and, and, and compassion and solidarity to experiences that are outside of your kind of realm, it becomes quite unethical. So, yeah, I think, I think that it, if you ask anyone who's directly implicated in any of the kind of reasons why someone shouldn't be celebrated, let's say, and also that's the other thing, right, is what are we talking about when we say cancelling somebody? Um, you know, does that mean that you are not allowed uh, to look at their films anymore? It's not that. It's about, like, not continuing to give kind of credence and power to the person that made that work
0: yeah Yeah. to withdraw veneration
4: yeah withdraw veneration and reassess and and like i mean i think it is complicated because you know obviously a lot of people that are dead as well you know that super problematic i mean there's a lot of very problematic um authors out there yeah um but i do think that there is a really strong case for not I, i yeah i wonder about veneration anyway what do you think about veneration (laughs)
0: <laughs> well it's interesting because that crosses over into something that Yelorovsky is complaining about on the yeah. commentary for El Topo. he's saying that and yeah, you know, yeah, the celebrity culture is is ruining cinema.
4: Yeah, but he loves I mean I I've yeah, seen obviously, him. He, loves, yeah, he... he he loves being venerated and like, you know, and, and that that I think that kind of ego culture, you know, there is something quite, you know, like in in the the text that he writes, you know, the characters that he plays in his films, they, they often like lack, you know, they're very kind of ego guru, leadery type characters, aren't they?
0: Yeah, I mean, they're literally holy men.
4: Yeah, shamans. You know, yeah. so I mean, that in itself, I think, is um, maybe indicative of, of his worldview. Do you see what I'm saying?
0: Absolutely. He complains about the egos of others because they impinge
2: upon his ego
4: space. Yeah, totally. But also, like, you know, maybe someone that kind of likes to portray themselves as above a, a kind of moral code is the kind of person that would rape someone on film.
2: Absolutely, and and we and we talk
0: it, we, we discuss it on the on the podcast. But there are theories, and this was relatively new information to me. Well, it was new information to mm-hmm. me when I when I listened to the audio commentary. But um, apparently, there are there are arguments now that it was a sort of um, an antagonistic claim made during the publicity of the movie, and doesn't actually represent what happened. But that. Feels very easy to say after the cat is out.
4: I can't remember what other film it was, or or it might have been about Dune. I mean, like, he he constantly refers to rape, by the way. Oh,
2: yeah. You he know, like, that word a lot.
4: You know, yeah, a lot, you know, and that's not great either. I mean, I think that's, you know, like, I do think that there is a case to be. To be made for a kind of nuanced, interesting position, and in what what do you, what do we do with culture? You know that um, we can't stand by the the people that have produced it. You know what what happens to the actual art, these artifacts? But I do think that um, you know, like at the in this historical moment, in this moment in history, where things are being reassessed, it makes sense for a lot of these things to kind of be brought up. Do you see what I mean? Like because yeah. even myself as someone who's in their 40s I think that my conceptions let's say around consent are very different to um somebody who's in their 20s do you see what I mean and and my mother as well you know when I talk to her about sexual violence like the things that she would consider to be coercion or rape are different to me. And so I think that there's something also kind of generational about how we think about it, and also gendered, you know? Let's say, what about if uh, that act that we see in El Topo, what about if that was an unsimulated beating of someone to the point where they were unconscious, let's say?
0: It's, yeah, it's it's interesting. We, we talk about a lot of these, like, because we're dealing largely with cult films and often films from the 60s and 70s we're we're very regularly wading through um, yeah. what are now very outdated morals and also outdated ways of making a film whether it's actor endangerment stuff like in El Topo animal violence you know all of these things yeah. were viewed through a very different lens at that time. I, I think a lot of the question with the older stuff, I mean, with new stuff, with people who are still making those kinds of films at, or even pushing an agenda, it's ve- it's a very different argument to be had about separating the art and the artist than from something that was made mm-hmm. a long time ago and also is now... like intertwined into the culture we have now, because it's part of that, that historical landscape.
4: Yeah, totally. I mean, but then I think, you know, th- what what we find palatable, what kinds of violence we have, uh, uh, we find palatable are often quite political. you see what I mean? So yeah. I think that that's also what, why this is a good example, because I think that, you know, for example, with Woody Allen, you know, I think a lot of people would struggle. Is it Manhattan where he's like dating a 16 year old?
2: Yeah, I think
4: so. You know, I think a lot of people would struggle to watch that film now and not think about him and the kind of atrocities that he's committed. Do you see what I mean? But I think that that is a kind of consensus idea of something completely unacceptable. And I think that rape is consensus unacceptable, but we still live in a very rapey culture you know even though it's getting better so i think that also like what we consider you know i don't think that there's a stasis around what things are palatable what types of violence are palatable to us and which aren't you know i think that that's exactly the kind of nexus of how we define ourselves ethically and politically is that shift of what becomes unpalatable is like a realization of um an experience of the other or or a human or process of humanization of of the other do you see what i mean so i think yeah so i think that it, it is complicated because like often the the things that we look at and let's say you know what you're saying about like animal cruelty or uh different approaches to women or people of colour, I think that these things change as we become kind of more aware of the politics of it and they become less palatable. But, you know, I think that often where we're willing to maybe make uh, allowances are places where we don't feel implicated.
0: Yeah, where we feel other to the act.
4: Yeah, or that, you know, like, um, or is it so bad, you know? Is it, like, so bad to kind of coerce someone sexually do you see what I mean like I think that that's what I mean about like it being also generational is that like for, for um sorry I'm going in a deep dive here about rape culture <laughs> sorry Dan but uh, you know there was this artist um I think she went to NYU or to Columbia I can't remember but she did this piece where she walked around with a mattress for um as a way to kind of protest this rape that she experienced and it was i think what had happened was in the middle of um like she consented to have sex and then she changed her mind in the middle and wanted it to stop and he wouldn't stop and i th- I think at the time i found it confusing you know like on a visceral level i was like it, it confused me in the sense that i didn't i didn't understand you know if she was right or not and now i definitely feel like i do understand but i felt that my own kind of uh stockholm syndrome my own kind of internalized misogyny made me kind of um unable to to have clarity around that you know but obviously when you say no it doesn't matter what the circumstances are or what's happening or what you said before no is always no right yeah so I think that that's the thing is that like when we look at a film like El Topo and we I like, go, oh, it was made in the 70s. I, I, I haven't been able to rewatch it since I, I found out that that's how that scene was made. There isn't a really adequate way to judge people. I mean, that's but I mean, rape is a crime and was a crime then as well. Right. So, I mean, that's maybe less of a gray area. But I think there is an adequate kind of mechanism or apparatus to place judgment upon people that have done, you know, acts that are within the kind of margins of legality, let's say. But I think that at least not to venerate, not celebrate and not to um, accrue power of, you know, material or immaterial, like money or or, um, um, reputation or whatever kind of uh, power that may be, is probably a good way to think about it.
0: Yeah. I've been, I've long been of the opinion that it is arguably impossible, no matter what people say, to separate art from artist because the art is contextualised by its creator. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore they are they are not separated. And El Topo was one of the first times where I kind of questioned that.
4: Yeah. What about someone like Lenny Riffenstahl?
0: Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, she was, yeah, she was a tool of the most horrible regime, and I can see arguments in both sides. Like I've, I've heard it said so often. You have to think of her first and foremost as a as a filmmaker making film any way she can, and and that she wasn't necessarily endorsing these things, but also she certainly wasn't doing very much to fucking protest them.
4: No, but don't you think? I think she's a good example of like how someone can be contextualized by their um past in a way because you know like I think that a lot of people would have seen I've seen a lot of Le- Lenny Riefenstahl's films and I think a lot of people that are interested in in um you know early experimental cinema would have seen a lot of her films but you always know that about her right like it's yeah. part of thing is you know that she she made triumph of the will and you know that she made propaganda films for the National Socialist Party in Germany so like there's always that knowledge when you're watching her work and i think that that's maybe a good way to go about it actually is like it's it's slightly different i agree it's not exactly the same but i wonder if there's a way for these people to be always Contextualized, you know, b- by these kind of um, acts that they did. Yeah, you know? I,
0: mean, that's a, I think that's actually a very good, a, a good sort of solution, which is that as long as, as long as you go the other way and so embed the art and the artist in the same space, that you contextualize the art and you say, well, this is, you know, the new film by famed rapist Roman Polanski. Rather than shading around it, then at least it can be seen in the context of what it is.
4: Exactly, exactly. But that's the problem is that like, you know, Polanski is another good, great example, actually, as someone who's consistently, you know, like there's this argument between like the salvaging of his greatness and as a tribute to his like genius, there has to be a kind of um, like, you know, wholesale pardon of his private life, right? Or there is the other way, which is like the recognition that he committed incredible abuses of power and behaved in a myriad of unethical ways. And then the tribute for that is his work. Like, I want, I do wonder if there is a way to, you know, to kind of shame the person, but still kind of be able to see the work, if that makes sense. But then again, if you were, you know, if you were sexually abused as a child, you know, would you feel that that's good enough you know like do you see what I mean I think that's the issue isn't it if you're very directly implicated in the kind of crimes that you're talking about I don't know if it feels like you know like okay
0: and there's the and there's the difficulty I guess is that because everyone's experiences are the same and because we don't have a, a perfect consensus on quite how awful everything is mm-hmm that all of these experience, yeah, that that everything is is just another level of
2: subjectivity to art.
4: Yeah, and I think I mean I think what's interesting about Khodorovsky, though, and and Polanski actually, you know, is that they're both very kind of venerated, uh, but quite, I mean, I say underground in a very loose way here, but you know that they're, they're not like mainstream. Um, yeah. Cineasts you know they're they're um kind of a little bit more specialists let's say and the kind of veneration around them is also like wild you know and i think that that there is also something about that that maybe in you know decoupling or thinking about it it can it can operate on both ways like so that you could also say this is a wonderful film but you don't have to be like he's a genius do you see what i mean <laughs> yes <laughs> you know so like I'm wonderful so there's a way to do that I remember when I lived in New York in the 90s and I went to Kim's video there was a shelf for Godard films and they um spelt God in capital letters (laughs) you know like Godard and um I remember like finding it so strange like that kind of idea that you would think of the person as that you know and not not the work. So I think there's also something to be said about like also when someone is celebrated that they maybe we should always separate it and think about, you know, like the work and the person as two different things and that you can um you don't have to necessarily celebrate the person when you celebrate a work. But I do think that bottom line Just to clarify, I don't think you can really separate the two. And I think that um, you have to, if you don't feel like your kind of moral fiber is, um, you know, stimulated or uh, viscerally kind of affected by Khodorovsky raping a woman that then had really bad psychological problems, then you, you have to know that someone else will be. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And because of that, that's enough for it to not be acceptable thank you I mean like I would never. I I teach right and as much as Khodorovsky left a very deep impact on me I would never show his films now to my students for example Why? yeah you know but it it doesn't mean that if let's say um it came on I don't have a television then but if (laughs) I did it (laughs) came on we would watch it, do you know what I mean? It's not that I
0: yeah
4: I feel you like just I just don't need seek to, it out. I don't seek it out and I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't recommend it because that's part of what I was saying before about like kind of not power. even
0: not even with the caveat and explanation as to why that caveat needed to be shared.
4: I don't know. I mean, I think like no because I think that ultimately, let's say in 10 years time or whatever, it probably will seem even less acceptable, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that that that's the other thing is that like I I'd veer towards a generosity. But I I mean I do think we need better conversations around this, by the way. Like I don't have a straight up answer and, and you know, and I think that there are a lot of people that do. And you know, there are things and I think it's always kind of relative to what your trigger points are. Do you know what I mean? I think yeah. like if you find something intolerable, you will find someone who perpetrated these things intolerable. And unfortunately as much as you say, we all have different experiences and different kind of, you know, um, different kind of measures, those measures aren't, they're not generic, you know, they're architected by a politic. And that's why I think it's better to to, to veer on the generosity, because, you know, we'll often be minoritized or other communities or bodies that, we find more acceptable to be denigrated. Do you see what I mean? Well, so, a, it's yeah,
0: to lean into empathy is to
4: exactly, yeah, yeah. And like to even if you, you know, are you as a cis white man, you know, uh, that have always conducted yourself ethically sexually i hope dan I, but you yes. you, <laughs> you might not feel that this is relevant to you but you know like i'm sure that if a lot of people who similar things would have happened to them do feel that it's um important
0: yeah i will i'll definitely say it took me longer to experience discomfort at depiction of sexual violence than it did for me to experience you know as i got older um, yeah. as someone who had never had to experience that or, or even really think about it in a real-world context, yeah, than it did for, say, animal cruelty in movies. It was, yeah. was a trigger to me much earlier in my life. Yeah, me too. Um,
4: and I think, yeah, me too.
0: And I, I think it is as you get older and that empathy muscle is flexed, you start yeah. to realise that maybe it's not just about your own experience.
4: Yeah, or like, I mean, the thing is, Yeah, I agree with you for me, too. I think that like animal cruelty has always been the thing that I found the most triggering. And, you know, like as uh, a cis person that was socialized, you know, like in a very um, misogynist culture, I found rape as a young person. I didn't find it acceptable, but like I, I had very messed up ideas around rape and consent. And it's designed that way. Do you see what I mean? So I think it's not just like men and women. Like, I think it is about like kind of systemic thinking, you know, and like, when you understand things in that way that we find rape acceptable because of like a kind of patriarchal culture um, that uses or thinks of like women's sexuality in a commodified way then we also can think beyond that and find it completely unacceptable so I think you know there is a genderedness that both um, that every you know that everybody is subjected to it's not just people you know like women or men i think it's something that everybody drinks from unfortunately that socialization you know the normalization of like rape isn't something that only um you know that men become kind of accustomed to women do too
0: yeah i mean yeah as you said societal numbness i guess to it
4: what what uh, are there any filmmakers that you've uh, you feel like you can't watch their films anymore because of their personal lives
0: <laughs> <laughs> I go out of my way not to watch anything by Mel Gibson
4: <laughs> but you know El Topo isn't about his personal life it's well, that's,
0: that's it this is something that Sam and I discussed on the episode is that I think there's a big difference between someone who's pushing an agenda and someone who is who is creating a piece of art and part of themselves is leaking into it
4: mm-hmm.
0: like if someone I, I feel that there is an actual agenda with someone like Gibson or with Zana yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes, I think that, I mean, they're different in terms of what the audience, you know, like, I think that if you watch El Topo, Knowing, you know, like I know that there are like that he's retracted some of the comments that he made about it. Like I know that he there's a book that was published where he explains about the kind of uh, wanting the authenticity of the act to, to be unsimulated. Um, So I know that the, the, he he then retracted those comments. But let's say, you know, that I think it's very convenient for him to retract them. And and it is known that the actress did have, you know, very severe mental health problems after that. Um, If you're watching that, you are complicit. Do you see what I mean? If you watch that film, you are complicit. If you know that that's what you're going to watch, you are accepting to watch someone being raped, right?
2: Yeah.
4: It's pretty grim. It's Pretty grim. Yeah.
0: I think we're going to have to wrap it up on that.
4: <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry not to be more hopeful or have um, <laughs> no, not at all. You no, know, any like really good solutions on it. I think it is a complicated thing that, in a way, you know, like cancel, what is called cancel culture, um, makes easy work of something that is quite difficult to make work of. If you see what I mean. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, but it, like you said, it's a very complicated um, thing. Yeah. It's, I, yeah, I certainly didn't expect
2: you to be able to
0: just turn up. No,
4: I mean, but, you know, I'm Jewish, and I really lo- love listening to Wagner sometimes, you know, and he was yeah. a weird anti-Semite, and, you know, I think that there's also something about, like, people that are alive, people that are dead, you know, I think there are yeah, many whether kind Yeah, they're of still factors. making money from it. Yeah, exactly, like, there are many factors, or, and again, you know, what were, like, the kind of prevalent um, societal norms, then, you know, I think... Um, It's interesting because like, if you, well, you know this, but like, you know, a lot of people recover um, like films that actually have sound politics, don't they? You know, there's a lot of this kind of process of, you know, looking at the canon and looking at things that maybe were overlooked, but actually that their politics were really interesting or uh, prescient. So, you know, it works both ways as well. There are things that I think, you know, gain. I mean, particularly, um, you know, women filmmakers that were definitely overlooked. You know, a lot of that work kind of suddenly has a different resonance. Um, So I think it works both ways as well. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, I I haven't heard that yet, but um, I'm sure I I, I agree with it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. You have something. I do. Um, I've got two more interviews from the London Film Festival this week uh, with filmmakers behind two of my favourite films. Uh, First up, I spoke with Jennifer Sheridan, who directed Rose, A Love Story, um, which is a a lovely slow burn uh, vampire flick beautifully shot and performed um in fact uh dan uh, it was so well shot that i uh you know i always watch the credits but i was watching the credits to see who the dp was and it was martina knitter who dan you might remember was the uh dp on um the channel Four random acts music video um yes yeah so um It was such a thrill to see her name pop up because obviously I worked with her a few years ago on on this music video for for Channel 4's Random Acts, the the, uh, Terminator 2 kind of pastiche. Um, And so it was really wonderful to see her uh, working on this this beautiful film. So um, Jennifer and I talked a little bit about Martina, but before we did that, we talked about this. Hey, Jennifer, how are you?
5: Hello, very well, thank you.
1: Loved the film. Um, Watched it, like, literally a couple of hours ago. It's amazing. Um, I'll go straight into it. Um, There's a a scene involving a pub. Let's not get into spoilers, but (laughs) amazing tension. Um, Beautifully directed. How long did that sequence take to shoot?
5: Well, it was... I know we did about seven takes... Which is more than what we usually did, but we really wanted to nail it. Um, yeah, but it, it, it was all, it was kind of the, the biggest trick was kind of getting the focus pull to the back of the bar and, and the timing of that. So once we'd nailed that, I mean, Matt always nailed his performance, so he made it very easy. But yeah, that's one of my favorite, that's definitely my favorite part.
1: Oh, it's so cool. And um, you started as an editor. Uh, how has that helped you as a director? Um, Do you kind of see the film already cut in your head and it's about getting those shots or you know how how has it helped you?
5: Well I definitely feel like the edit is such a brilliant way to kind of learn learn the kind of um, the basics of of what you need to cover a scene and working with directors for so long is such a brilliant way to learn because you know you can ask them about their process and sort of see in the footage what they've done but I think when you don't have money and time it's like it's so valuable that kind of knowledge of this is what I basically need to cover my ass and then anything on top of that that I can get creatively you know is a bonus I mean with the scene that you were talking about you know as an editor the editor in me was very nervous she was like okay well maybe you should get extra coverage just in case this doesn't work out in the edit but the director in me was like no i'm, I'm gonna just this is how i'm covering the scene i'm gonna stick to it so you know there's always that editor brain kind of going have you covered all of your bases mm-hmm. and i think that can really help you when you don't have time and money
1: that's brilliant thank you um and uh, martina nitta was your dp Um, I actually worked with her um, on a music video I directed for Channel 4. Um, She is fantastic. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about working with her? Because the film is so beautifully shot.
5: Thank you. Yes, she is incredible. I mean, when I looked at her work, because I didn't really know her before Rose, and I interviewed a few DOPs for the job, and it sort of came down to her and one other, and I was really torn between them. But there was stuff in her work that I just... When I looked at it, I thought that is Rose. That's the look of Rose to me. Like that's what I want it to look like. So she felt like a safe pair of hands in that way. But also, I mean, goodness, she works so hard. She she doesn't put the camera down. You have to tell her, you know, put the camera down, (laughs) take a break, you know, don't exhaust yourself. We've still got a few more days to go, you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think she's incredibly talented. And also her ability to work with very little light, because we didn't have a big lighting
1: budget
5: um she's very adaptable i think that was a huge strength for this film
1: yeah yeah absolutely um and uh matt stoker is the co-lead he also wrote the script um the dialogue is so kind of simple and pared down um but in that way it feels really real um did the script evolve during the shoot at all
5: It really evolved before the shoot. We spent a couple of years just kind of batting ideas back and forward and kind of questioning things and making sure we were telling the right story. And and I think the script, when I first read it, it was already there. So there wasn't like a huge amount that we needed to do to it. But when, when it came to shooting, I mean, it really surprisingly didn't change very much because Matt and Sophie are such brilliant actors, first of all when we did a read-through before filming and every time we'd rehearse before shooting a scene, they would just bring such, you could just tell that they knew it so well, they felt it, they lived it, and and they had this kind of shorthand with each other that made my life so easy as a director, Um that it, it didn't feel like it needed much changing in, in terms of like when we actually got in there, which is probably, I think, in our case, it was it was a blessing that we'd done that groundwork before stepping foot in the woods because there really wasn't time to kind of hash you know ideas out and go, well, why don't we try you know yeah, yeah. we didn't really have that luxury unfortunately we just had to really cover I mean we had fifteen days to shoot the whole thing uh, yeah, no budget to come back and do pickups once the sets were not painted anymore they weren't painted you know so <laughs> yeah, so we really had to. It, 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 we did the groundwork before
1: well <laughs> oh, that's amazing and um yeah sophie's obviously great um how did she get involved obviously there's a tv background there but um how did uh, you bring her on board the project
5: well she came through matt because they were shooting a sky show together right. and flying back and forward to budapest a lot and she saw matt kind of writing the script on the plane and said oh what are you writing you know and he it's the script She said, can I read it? And and he sent it to her and she came back with notes that were brilliant and and it felt like even despite the brilliant actor that she is, she has a really creative brain and she has a real kind of um, insight and intelligence with storytelling. So they kind of started to collaborate a little bit um, together on the script. And then it just made absolute sense that you know they would then p- play those parts because they knew them in a way that, you know, so many actors don't get the opportunity to mold their own characters, you know, in a film and then get to enact those characters. So it's it's quite a beautiful, lucky, kind of very organic thing having her.
1: I, I love the ending so much. Obviously, we can't get into it in detail because spoilers, spoilers. Um, but yeah, two things, really. One, what made you decide to end it there without getting into spoilers? Because obviously you could have gone a bit further, but it's perfect the way it is. Um, and the the Villagers song on the end credits, um, yeah. it has a whole new meaning based on what we've just seen. It, it's brilliant. How did you select that song, and does it have that kind of resonance for you?
5: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like the film is is almost... Um it's like a chapter, isn't it? It's like a chapter yes. of a story, so you don't really get to know what happened before and you don't really get to know what happens afterwards the audience kind of left to make up their own minds about what happens and I quite like that. I like that it's this still this distilled little story on its own um that's slightly open ended and um the villagers track i mean i've I've loved the villagers for years. And I really felt like his kind of haunting, beautiful voice would would kind of allow something to sink in at the end of the film. Yeah. And when I heard that, that song, I just absolutely fell in love with it. I didn't, in my wildest dreams, think that they'd give us permission to use it, but thankfully they did. And at one point I was going to work it into a film in a kind of montage thing, but then that sort of didn't feel like it, it sort of interrupted the flow of things. So... I was really glad that we got to use it as a credit song. I love that song.
1: It it could almost be an opening credit song a a, a, a sequel to this film. I mean, would would you be tempted to go back to to this world um you know again without getting into spoilers <laughs> but, um you know, I just I I didn't want to leave the world. So, yeah, would you be tempted oh, to do more or
5: I mean, definitely. I feel like it was such a An incredible journey for me as a filmmaker getting to make the film I can only hope that what I go on to make in the future is you know I hope I haven't peaked too soon put it that way (laughs) um yeah I mean it is it is an amazing world and I think it's a really interesting take on the kind of vampire genre I think that's quite exciting it almost kind of you know vampirism in, in the past has been so romanticized with things like Twilight and made to look so beautiful and glamorous and I, yeah, yeah I think we kind of showed a, a slightly grittier kind of this is actually what the reality of would be if you lived with someone who had these kind of afflictions you know you'd have to manage meal times then your sex life would suffer you know
1: yeah
5: so um so I like I like that kind of realism aspect of it that that really excites me
1: for sure and I'm on my last question Um there's some parallels with the the pandemic obviously there's a conversation about an imaginary dinner that feels like it could have happened this year um does it feel a bit creepy to be part of that zeitgeist um
5: well a little bit I mean obviously we had no idea what was coming
1: about
5: yeah. two years ago but um I don't know it's it's a little bit creepy. I wouldn't want to kind of capitalise on like all the death and stuff that's nice. the, and the horrible reality that we're sort of living in at the moment. But I do hope that it might mean that audiences can relate to Rose a bit more and their isolation. I think that might just be what it gives people like a slightly extra level of, I, I know how that feels, you know, being stuck indoors, yeah. uh, having to wear a mask. <laughs> so, yeah
1: brilliant well thank you so much for your time and thank you for the film i
5: really oh, did love it.
1: thank you thank you so much that means a lot okay nice yeah so um thank you to jennifer for uh, her time and for the the lovely movie i really did um like rose a lot uh and i also liked uh natalia meters the intruder uh, have you heard much about this one dan no, no, I, the name floated about a bit, but other than
0: reminding me of another film called Intruder, I, yeah.
1: I don't think I know much about it. Oh, it's it's one for you for sure. Um, yeah, it's a really fascinating mix of lots of different genres, but there's giallo in there, um, comedy, drama and kind of straight supernatural horror. Um, nice. It makes the film pretty hard to summarise. Um, so I asked Natalia to sum it up for me and she didn't want to do that either so um, we're (laughs) going to go into that but stay tuned for one of the best explanations of the origins of the horror genre I've ever heard Um, what Natalia has to say about horror is absolutely wonderful but anyway I'll shut up and you can listen to it now how would you describe The Intruder to someone who ha- isn't aware of it yet? Um, because it's such a fantastic mix of genre.
6: I I always tried um, to think uh, what would be the best for, way to introduce the film. And I always thought it was much better if uh, people didn't know anything about it. Before okay. watching the film. <laughs> so I know it's difficult because <laughs> that's difficult for an interview, but I think it's important that they don't um, have a um, an idea that this is a horror film, or mm. that this is a you know in a pure way, no, or that this is a um, a trailer, or mm. that this is a like maybe also a, a, a dark comedy. Um, I think it, it it's it, that that's important that they don't have a a, a clear idea that 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 they're going to see a a, um, a film uh which responds to a, a specific genre it, it, it has elements of all of these and even also it's a love story mm. uh so uh, i think i think it, it, this would be a, a good way to introduce it, the film
1: and um i i don't want to get into spoilers um but I, I really want to talk about the the where the title appears, the, the title card, because it, it, it takes a little while before, before the title appears. And when it does, it's such an amazing shot. Um, again, without getting into spoilers, how did you get that shot? Um uh, that's a, I, I, love that you,
6: I love that you asked this this uh <laughs> this this question because it was by it was by accident. Wow! Um, because yes because we had just thought about well it was an accident but it was a you know it, it was a really um, um i think this is a, this is a, a, a something important for for uh, people who are who are making films sometimes it, it's 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 good to know i i would love to 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 know these kind of things before so i was very worried because we had to um have this shot of um a person in the pool. I'm trying not to spoil. Yes, that's
2: perfect. So,
6: and I was very worried about the height. You know, the effect of the height of the of the shot because it, it was very important to have a, a a very clear understanding of what could have happened. Mm. So, um, uh, I mm, I was very worried, and we discussed this a lot with the the. Um, the the DP, and we had a lot of discussions about this, if we were going to do it from the balcony, if we were, well, and I, and I'm not, you know, I don't have a lot of technical uh, knowledge in photography. So it was even more difficult because I was worried. (laughs) I was worried, I said, this is not, and she said, you know, it's not like the way you see it, it's just, but I was very worried. So I asked to have an extra shot with a, um from higher up in the building, but it was not possible. so we got a drone, you know uh, mm. the, these machines yeah. and we got the machine and we just wanted the machine to stay you know more or less still and and get this shot uh, in a, but each time we had to uh have a retake um the the drone had for for some strange reason, it had to like it stayed there for like 10 seconds and then it flew into the horizon wow. and came back you know like when a car has to you know uh go down the go down a, a road and 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 turn back yeah okay, just as so this was what the drone had to do and it was a beautiful day with some beautiful um clouds mm-hmm. and he kept doing this because also i like to have a lot of takes so he kept doing this maybe you know uh, with two or three it would have been enough but we did quite a bit because of the wind because he didn't you know the the person downstairs was not in the right place i wanted another you know, all details and suddenly we said oh this is very beautiful and we decided to do to do this in uh you know to tell him you know that keep keep on keep on keep on keep on yeah and that's how we got this shot
1: Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> Thank you. That's incredible. Um, and it, in the early stages of The Intruder, it feels like Brian De Palma's blowout might have been an influence. Um, yeah. Are you a fan of that movie?
6: I saw that movie when I already had written the script. Yeah. I have I had seen um Barbarian Sound Studio. Yeah. And I loved a lot that film. Uh, so that was an uh, uh, that was an influence and also uh the the palma film but i saw them when i already had well barbarian sound studio i saw it first but really my my influence for 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 this film was my previous film where i had to do a very long um dubbing very long and very difficult Mm. and also you know and a a bit traumatic because it was with an actor whom i thought was going to speak in um Came to the film, and uh, he and I. We thought he was going to speak like as an Argentinian, but he could not. He was Mexican. Wow. So I was all the film very worried. And then he had to go back to LA. It's a Demian Bichir, and 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 we had to do a very long dubbing uh, session uh, on an online. You know, there's a way to do it. Yeah, and it was it was very difficult. I was very worried, and also. Um, we there was some very difficult words, so we had we played a lot of effects, you know, when we when we were doing we stretched a lot of words, we took consonants and changed them well we did a lot a lot of work. and to me, uh, this film was uh, I the, the the book has nothing to do with with dubbing. The book is about a girl who has a restaurant. Um, and I introduced the music. And um, and the dubbing because those were two things which were very important for me and and the dubbing experience was one of the most <laughs> like uh, uh, long, interesting, and anguishing experiences in my life.
2: That's <laughs> oh, really so, interesting. So yeah.
6: really, that's a, I, I, that it also a uh, uh, a very there's a lot of Almodovar's films with with dubbing mm. um, and singing in the rain. So. There's a long story. I know that Barbarian Sound Studio is very beautiful and has this thing about the the horror movies, but it's more about um, the um, you know the um, the uh, well. There, it, it it has a different approach. I was more more interested in in the voice because of, of this that had happened to me, and uh, the the Palma film is 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 very. Is very beautiful too, and the conversation. The conversation yeah. by uh, Coppola is, I think, that's an amazing film. Yeah, true. so, yeah, I think the first uh, film with uh, dubbing is is Singing in the Rain. You know that where you see a dubbing yeah. uh, session and everything. It's, I, I, I think, though it's an it's amazing. It's an amazing process, and it's it's. I think it's wonderful that people can see it.
1: And um, have you read Kayla Janice's book, House of Psychotic Women? Um, because no, no. I because I definitely recommend it to you. And it kind of makes the argument that horror films are empowering to women because most horror films are about a fear of women. Um, it, it feels like the intruder is exploring similar ideas. Um, is, is that fair to say? I think
6: they are, they are empowering for, for everyone because... Yes. I, I can recommend another book i'll try i'm i'm a bit sleepy now because it's 6:30 in the morning here <laughs> but <laughs> um um I'll, I'll i'll remember it it's a book by an i think a, a philosopher or anthropologist and he explains how like ancient societies had um horror films as, as part of uh rituals for young people um like There were a lot of uh, tribes in, for example, I don't know, Australia or uh, which had like rituals, which consisted in telling children when they were 13, that they were dead, uh, putting them on the ground, uh, covering them with uh, leaves. Uh, Mothers came crying. They changed their names. They took them to the forest with some teachers. There they had to go into a creepy house, the teachers dressed up as witches and monsters, and um, sometimes they were circumcised in this process. They were, um, they passed, a, they they were left quite hungry. They had to maybe hunt for the first time. They, and then they go back, and they have another a new name. Uh, so this ritual, with little differences, um, is like a, the is is what's typical in many many uh, societies uh so it's a rite of passage where you have to lose fear and i think i i was very scared i just loved this book you know the el mal menor and i wanted to do something about this but i was always really scared about horror uh, horror films and for me like i had i started watching horror films because of I had seen some but I I started like studying and and watching films like um, The Shining side well a a lot of classic films and I was okay with the films like with The Uncunning you know like Cat People for example Uh, this was fine for me I could I could watch this Um, but and i think that this film i i did is is more in this this uh tone than in a you know it's not not at all a horror film i couldn't get there so i think this was uh um uh something something in me that still is 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 afraid but i i wanted to lose fear and i realized the process it, it's you know it's like a, a process and a training to lose fear that's what horror films are and uh, you can see this when you when you compare these films with um, with other films that tell really terrible, real terrible stories. You know, and and you see what's the effect when you watch a horror film. You are very scared, but afterwards it's fine. Uh, if you watch, I don't know, uh, I don't know, uh, tragedies. I I don't know. Uh, you 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 have a, the the effect is quite quite different. Mm-hmm. So I think horror films have have this effect, and in this sense, they are empowering. and And it helped me a lot to watch them, even if I I didn't want to cause all of that into my, in my audience, or I couldn't, I couldn't. Maybe I, I I just couldn't because I wanted to, you know, I wanted this horror also to to transform in in in, in something in something else i saw i saw other things in this in these stories i think also it's important to see that sometimes certain things are are told as horror stories and really they are not so this is something i i wanted to 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 introduce into into the film for me it was it was important
1: i love it there we go um uh, a great chat i'm sure you'll agree cool right well this is probably going to be That's another it. long episode isn't it super um, long because uh, of all the interviews and that but um and the fact that we've already got on for an hour <laughs> yeah about a film that we didn't want to talk about <laughs> um yeah you know if, if you're listening to the if you've got this far and you're a, a, a holy mountain supervan um you know sorry <laughs> uh but i hope you come back next time i don't
0: know i mean i think these sticky subjects are are kind of they're the deep level stuff you know like when you've seen it 50 times and you've recommended it to people and you've watched it on all of the drugs that you don't mind taking you know from lemsip to ibuprofen um then these are the things these are the conversations you start to have about film it Mm. just happens that there's a lot to talk about on this
1: one you know and here's actually no i'm not gonna i was gonna (laughs) i was gonna tell the world my lemsip story dan but i don't think i'm gonna do that i don't think i don't think i want that part of my legend um i like i like that the i I like if this stays in
0: then the audience just knows that there is a lemsip (laughs) story it's going to become a thing
1: yeah yeah. eventually
0: when the world's back to normal and we're at fright fest someone's going to come up to you at fright fest and say what's the what's the lemsip story
1: Right. Well, you know the expression "chat shit get blocked." My version is "chat lem sip get fucked." No, get blocked. <laughs> <laughs> get blocked. Anyway, God, that, that almost... is a, a salacious proposition you're putting out there. <laughs> oh God! Um, you can find Dan at Thirteen Finger FX on Twitter and on Instagram. He does. But you can he find does dog Sam. pictures and um, <laughs> politics. And film, stuff and film stuff occasionally um he's doing a lot I more think of I'll... that
0: yeah i'm doing more of that uh, there might be some stuff for the new weekly soon oh, it's exciting isn't it yeah that's very exciting and you can find sam at sam ashurst on twitter and at sam ashurst 23 on instagram uh, although he's not using that as much at the moment so follow him on twitter
1: Ah, oh, perfect! Absolutely bloody perfect. Um, <laughs> thank we you. did not rehearse that. We didn't. No, that was just a, a curveball. That, um, Sam's phone number. <laughs> 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 and the lensip story is no. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for listening, and we promise to be more professional next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.